Isaiah chapter number 6. We want to look at Isaiah's calling to prophesy. Isaiah 6, verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he did fly. And one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the pulse of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he took with the tongs off the altar, and he laid it on my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Isaiah's calling to prophesy. Let's have a word of prayer. Again, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to break the bread of life. Across this nation, people are gathering on a Sunday evening to hear the word of the Lord ministered. God, we have a profound admiration for you and for your name. God, as we sit attentive this evening, hide me behind your cross. Let the words we speak, let them be clear. Give each one of us ears to hear what thus saith the Lord. This we do pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. The name Isaiah means Yahweh's salvation or salvation of the Lord. This man prophesied some eight centuries before the Lord, and he prophesied under four kings or during the reign of four different kings. It's the longest book of the major prophets that we have, some 60 odd chapters in it. He had a very difficult calling because he was called to minister to a very difficult people. Chapter 1, the first four verses, gives us the background of what he had to deal with. It says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Then it gives the names of the four kings. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know my people, do not consider. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity. You know, that, it's interesting that this scroll with the prophecies begins by telling us a little bit about God and about his children. It begins by saying, I've nourished children, I've brought them up, and yet his children have rebelled against him. Now, there are a lot of parents that have experienced that and seen children raised a certain way only to get older, to go their own way, and usually lives 
uh, in a way that is contrary to how they were actually reared. But it's one thing to look into Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 and realize that God, he can empathize with that. He brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've been his family. He's been their father. He has, he has preserved them and protected them. But yet, as the scripture says, they are burdened with iniquity. They just sin all the time. And he goes so far in verses 9 and 10 to liken Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. An amazing thing. Speaking of the judgment, he said, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. He said, there's a, there's a remnant people that love God enough. They have kept them from going hog wild into the kinds of sin that burdened Sodom and Gomorrah. And we thank the Lord that God always has somebody that believes in him. It's always a remnant. What, what's a remnant? A remnant is what your grandma used to have when she used to sew and stitch and make quilts. And she had maybe a little basket with some little pieces of cloth here and there, and she would use those to stitch up holes in something, whether it was in the making of the quilt or maybe it was in the fabric of some pants that you had. And if you would ask her, what are these? She would explain, those are remnants, just pieces of something that at one time was original now being used to help you. The prophecy says that except God had left a remnant, we would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's nice to know God loved them enough to send them a prophet to speak to them, to point out what was right, to point out what was wrong. People in ancient times and people certainly today have the idea that uh, no one should tell them what they're doing is right or wrong. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me what I'm doing? Is right. Who are you to ask me about what am I, I'm doing? Who are you to talk to me about morality and ethics and about good and bad behavior? But you can see God sent the prophet to speak to Israel in their rebellious condition. And those usually are the people who need to hear what God's word says, even if they have decided, I don't want to hear from God, nor do I want to hear from his messenger. So it's not about what the people want. It's about what's important to God. <clears throat> now, this is the pattern of Israel. We can see it here, but you certainly see it clearly in the book of Judges. God does something great for them. He spares them. He preserves them. He delivers them. They get excited. They walk with God. <clears throat> and then when the deliverer dies, they backslide. Once they backslide, trouble comes. God permits another nation to come and take advantage of them, take advantage of their harvest and their economy is hit drastically because of that. So when they're in their, uh, their, their shameful state, they cry out to God saying, Lord, send us somebody to help us. God in his mercy, his compassion, God in his grace sends another deliverer who comes along and fights against the adversaries. But at the same time says to the children of Israel, return to God, return to God. So they return to God. And as long as the deliverer's alive, they do what's right until they go right back into the cycle again. Now that is Israel. And when Isaiah comes along, Israel is at that point where God in his mercy is trying to say to them, repent, turn from your wicked ways, come back to me. See, God's always trying to get the ear of people. And whenever preachers get on television and preach this message, however much 
People get angry about this when they hear it on radio or on some kind of Christian program. Always remember you are listening to the voice of God in compassion, telling people, turn from their sins, even if they don't interpret it that way. That's a loving God says, I love you too much to allow you to drive as fast as you can down a road that's a dead end and then allow you to go off the cliff. Isaiah comes along during a time, according to chapter 6, when Isaiah, the king, has died. And it's in the year that this occurs. So the moment, or sometime during the, the period when Isaiah gives up the ghost and is buried, God comes along and speaks directly to Isaiah. One man passes from the scene, God raises up another one to do something else. A king, a person of royalty, a monarch passes away, God raises up a preacher. Isaiah, scripture says he comes to him in a vision. Now, historical events sometimes can be tied to God's visitation in someone's life. Maybe you've had that happen to you. Maybe you can't remember a particular day when God did something or said something to you. But you can remember the time frame because you can remember some historical event that is connected with it. I know that's happened with me. A little 18-year-old boy on Okinawa, Japan many years ago, and I still remember the night I went to sleep and had the dream that changed my life as a little teenager. Jesus had come to me in a dream and told me he wanted me to travel and preach and learn different languages, and then one day I'd settle down and pastor. I can't remember the day that happened, but I can tell you this, it was right during the period when the emperor of Okinawa died, because I can remember walking up and down the base after things had been shut down and just contemplating everything God was dealing with my heart about and we weren't allowed to leave the base, the whole, the whole country, that little island, six miles uh, wide, 66 miles long, was in mourning for the death of this emperor who was either in his 90s or close to 100. He was a beloved figure in Okinawa. Because Okinawa was different and distinct from Japan. It's his own country. At that time, it was. So I can remember that. I have an understanding of what is taking place with Isaiah when it says, In the year that Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord. Now, that's not to say God didn't speak to anybody else during the year that Uzziah died. And it's not to say God doesn't speak to you or anybody else during the year someone else passes away and something significant happens to you. But it is to say God gives us these reminders. Two things Isaiah saw. The Lord enthroned and the Lord exalted. One of the first things God wants a God-called person to believe and to understand it is that God is almighty. When you see a throne, you know that's an emblem of power. Scripture says that the throne was high and lifted up. The glory filled the house of God. Seraphims were flying back and forth and had six wings. And scripture is very plain. They were crying out, holy, holy, holy. The Lord enthroned is what Isaiah saw. It's a life-changing experience to get a glimpse of God in this way. So you need to know God is almighty over your life. He's almighty over your circumstances. You haven't encountered a mountain or a hill or a problem that's greater than God. Well, you certainly can walk with God and he can make 
you know, your mountains and turn them into molehills, but you certainly don't want to turn a molehill into a mountain. Make it bigger than what it is. Scripture says in Mark 11, speak to the mountain. You see, But understand that God is almighty over everything that's taking place, the path that you're on, the steps that he directs. He's almighty over your thinking, over your mind. He wants you to bring every thought captive so that he can lead and guide you in how to think the thoughts of God. But he's also exalted. Scripture says he's high and lifted up. That means he's above all others, real or fictitious persons and deities. Somebody tells you they serve a God that's different than our God, then you know that person is serving a false God, an idol. I think it was John Calvin that said that the human heart is an idol factory. We look for ways and opportunities to create our own God. I've had people say to me, well, that's your God, but that's not my God. My God is like this. I said, well, you can have your God. I'm very interested in the one that's right here. I don't want a God that fits my own conception of what I want God to be. I want a God that's big enough to transform and conform my life to him. Not me paint a picture of him in conformity with what I desire about a God. Your God, you might want one that wears blue jeans and eats pizza. You might, wear, you might have one that wears Hawaiian shirts and, and uh, shorts. You might have a, have a God that has dreadlocks and caps on his teeth. See? You might have a God that maybe he, he, he's blind and he's deaf and he's unable to speak. But I want the one of Scripture. I want the one Isaiah saw when he looked up there and saw him seated on that throne. And Isaiah said, wow. He was blown away by what he saw. He wasn't blown away because of the fact God was hideous looking. There was an aura, the glory of God in that place. And in the midst of all of that, the only thing he can say, according to the scripture, there in verse 5, he says, woe is me. Now think about that. There is a threefold vision that takes place here. In verse number five, he recognizes that in the presence of God, who he really is, comes out. Okay. Now, we, we can all put on masks and uh, I can act holier than thou in the pulpit and maybe act holier than thou outside the pulpit. But, but, but she knows what I am. And if she knows what I am, you know, he really knows what I am. Yeah. And this is why this man is able to stand in the presence of God and say, woe is me. There's something about the presence of God. There's something about God in his word. When you begin to read it, it's like he's, he's out there digging, trying to uproot the weeds that are out there in your garden. And he digs around all those places in your heart. And then he, he exposes something that you don't particularly like. But he doesn't do that because he's trying to hurt you. He only does that because he wants the garden to flourish. There's something in your life he wants to bring forth wonderful and good fruit. Aren't you glad God's a gardener? Oh, my, praise the Lord for that. Isaiah 5 talks about the vineyard, him being the vineyard keeper. So there's a threefold vision here in verse 5. He says, I am undone. He speaks of the people with unclean lips. And then he talks about the king, the Lord. So first of all, there's that inward vision. He sees who he is. 
but he interprets who he is in light of the people amidst who amidst whom he lives. And that's the people. They're unclean. So I'm bad. They're bad. But he's good. The vision inwardly is wrong. The vision outwardly doesn't look much better. But my upward vision is even better because I see God now. Yeah. So you can get your eyes on him or you can focus on what's wrong. And I can promise you if, you, if you think about your weaknesses and your flaws a bit too much, you probably will get depressed. Yeah, you probably will. But if you think about the greatness of God and how wonderful he is, you'll be excited about that. That's one of the reasons I like songs that magnify him and sing about him. I do. I love, I love songs that talk about Calvary, the blood, the cross, the name of the Lord, all of those things. Because whenever I have to spend long periods of time, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, just singing songs that talk about me, as much as I understand, I'm all of that. And a bag of chips in redemption. I know deep down in here, there's a whole lot of difference in what I'm singing and what I am. And what I am. But when I take the time to sing about him, there's nothing in me that ever has any doubts or anxieties about that. I know he's great. I know he's mighty. I know he's holy. I know he's wonderful. And I know he loves me so much he gave his only begotten son. Yeah, that's so true. So in this chapter then, God first must affect him before he can affect others. God has to transform you before he can transform other people. So each one of us tonight are trophies that have been rescued from sin so that the Lord can show us off and let people know about the battle that he won in order to have us. So he says, oh, he says, you ought to think about, you ought to think about the fight I had to go through in order to win him or her. I mean, he may have had to come through a gutter. Yeah. He may have had to come through bad marriages. He may have had to come through some situations where somebody was being bullied or somebody felt bad in life and the Lord rescued that person and put them in a beautiful place. And the scripture makes it plain now that since you've been changed, you can work to change others because of what God has done in your life. So it starts with somebody. Just a coal on the altar is useless until it's placed on someone's lips. That coal didn't mean anything until it touched Isaiah's lips. It just looked like any other coal. It acted like any other kind of coal. But the moment that thing touched him, his sin, his iniquity was purged, and he knew, I've been changed. That's the key. God has to affect the one called before the one called can affect others. There was a gentleman who... Tiffany and I used to go to his uh, preacher's meeting down in Beaumont, Texas. Bert Clendon, and he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he tells about going to preach up near the North Pole, up by the Russian side, in Canada, though. But it was in a little village called Waskaganish, Indian village. He said he got there. He said he just couldn't believe the revival that had taken place before he got there. He said there was a man, the son's telling him the story because the son's the pastor of the church now. His dad started the church, but... Now the son is telling him the story. He said, my dad used to be a miner, and God spoke to my dad, who was illiterate, 
said, I want you to leave these mines and take your family and go to the village of Waskaganish and preach the gospel. That's what he did. Man couldn't read, couldn't write. Illiterate man got to that village, and I mean, it's filled with Indians that had every kind of problem you could think of with substance abuse. I mean, alcohol, drugs, terrible. Well, he went there and started preaching, and, and those drunkards, they get so angry listening to this man preach the gospel to him that they would beat him. They'd all just gang up on him and just beat him. Well, this man, he, he preached and preached and never saw a convert, never saw a life changed by anything. This went on year after year. The young man was telling the story, said one day the men of the, of the village came to the house, kicked the front door in and went into the bedroom, dragged his dad out of the bed, stripped him naked out there in that cold and beat him and like to left him for dead. And that young man who's not pastoring, he, he said he was only eight years old when that happened. And he said, I swore when I was eight years old, he said, when I get big enough, I'm going to kill every one of them. That's what he said. He said, I'm going to kill every one of them. Seven years. That man preached and more. Didn't see a convert. One day he had his family down there in that marketplace again, and he broke that Bible out, and the boy said he got so terrified because he said, surely they'll kill him now. And his dad started preaching at all of those inebriated men and women one more time, but he said this time was different because finally the wind blew. He said God swept through that place. Said people had been drunk for 35 years, had never known a sober day, suddenly sobered up and were right with God. Said in a little village with 1,200 people, 600 of them are now full of the Holy Ghost and in that church. Said when the service was over at midnight, said he left more than 200 teenagers dancing in the spirit, full of the Holy Ghost, as he went home that night to stay. All of that because a man that was unable to read and write had been changed by God left a mine in order to go to a village to tell somebody about Christ. It starts with one person. Every village, every town, every city, every community, every state, every country is one man or one woman away from a revival. Just one. So here's the question that comes to Isaiah in chapter, chapter 6, verse number 8. It says, whom shall I send and who will go? Until that question becomes personal to you, it never becomes a calling. Once it becomes personal to you, then it is a calling. When, when God asks, whom shall I send and who will go? When you interpret that to me, he's talking to you. That's when it becomes a calling and you begin to wrestle with God at night. And it doesn't have to be a calling where you feel like you're called to preach. A person can be called to do anything. Called to minister to kids. Called to clean people's homes. Called to take care of people. A calling, something that we wrestle with over and over again. And when this happens, it has to have a personal connection to us, otherwise we won't stay with it. It's an inward calling. It's heard by you. Even if other people don't hear it and you try to explain it to them, they won't understand it because it's personal. It's between you and God. God's working in your heart, middle of the night, Throughout the day, it could be a dream in the night, a vision could be a daydream. God's dealing with your heart. I'm telling you, every time you see a sunflower, it seems like that calling is just coming to you. Every time you hear a dog bark or catch me out, you just seem to hear God somehow trying to get your attention. 
You go for a walk through the woods, it looks like every leaf on the tree is just jiggling and shaking and telling you you need to do what God's telling you to do. That's what calling is. You can't escape it. It's an inward thing heard by you personally. There has to be a strong personal conviction because there will be people who will doubt you. and Some are going to resist you. They're going to say, I don't care anything about your Bible or about your God, or you say God told you to come tell me anything. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what Isaiah heard. But God prepared Isaiah in the beginning. He said to Isaiah, these folks are not going to listen to you. And notice the message he gives to him in verse 9. Go and tell the people, hear indeed, but don't understand. You see indeed, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people fat. How is he going to do that? By the proclamation of God's word. Make their ears heavy. How is he going to do that? By the proclamation of God's word. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. He said to Isaiah, be prepared to preach to people who don't want to hear what you have to say. Mm. How'd you like a calling like that? I think that may be why. In America, the average pastor changes churches every two and a half to three years. Yeah. They run into the first board member, matriarch, patriarch in the church that won't give them what they want, won't give them a raise, or won't do this for the kids, or won't do this or that. Then before you know it, they're mad and they're upset. So pretty soon they're angry, don't want to read the Bible. They'd rather be anywhere than in the house of God. So now they're looking for reasons to get away, to do this, to do that. And sooner or later, it catches up with them when they start praying tired and preaching sick. The people hate them. They don't like the people they're preaching to. And the only thing left to do after all of that is call for the U-Haul. Yeah. Call for the U-Haul. And, and those folks in the church, they're so kind, they'll help you pack. Oh, yeah, we'll help. Oh, let's get that out of there fast as we can. Get that on that truck, boy. He said he's leaving tomorrow morning. Don't, don't play. See? Yes. But all across the nation, there are people who have a call of God, but because of their character, they don't know how to stay with it. See? They don't know how to stay with it. Now, it's, it's true that Noah is probably the most successful preacher to ever live. You know, I mean, he had a lot of people during his day, but only eight people made it on the ark. You say, how, how, how is he the most successful preacher? Scripture says he was a preacher of righteousness, and everybody he didn't save ended up damned. Didn't miss a one. Every single person was affected somehow or another by what was coming out of his mouth. That's, that, that's a powerful, that's a powerful message. We don't know anything about his, his wife's name. We know who his sons were. We know they were on that ark, but I'm telling you, the man of God was on the ark with his family, and he was grateful that the word of God had transformed his entire family. But imagine working on building an ark of salvation, preaching to your neighbors, friends, and enemies, they resist you the whole time. Yeah. I, I'm sure when he got on that ark and the Lord shut him in, he understood what it meant to serve God because now he hears the people out there pounding on that ark saying, Noah, please let us in. Noah, please let us in. They're hanging on that ark. That water's coming down from the heavens. That thing begins to float. No doubt there are probably people hanging on the top of that thing saying, I've got to outlast this storm the best way that I can. But when it was all over, 
Noah and his family are the only ones that emerged to start this new world. As sure as we come from Adam and Eve, you better believe we all come from Noah and his family. There's no doubt about that at all. He says to Isaiah, go and tell these people. So God doesn't always reveal the future hardships and difficulties to you before you go, but sometimes he gives you a glimpse of what you're going to face. Paul didn't understand everything he was going to go through. The man named Ananias who went and laid hands on him got a glimpse of what Paul was going to go through. He's going to stand before kings and he's going to be beaten and difficulties are going to come. Isaiah saw some of this very clearly. I mean, if, if, God, were to, if God would have shown you when you became a Christian everything you would have had to face as a Christian, I wonder sometimes if we would have converted, if we would have had any idea. If, if you would have known that once you became a Christian, the road would be as rocky as it has been. Or maybe once you became a Christian, if you knew that so many friends would turn their backs on you, so much persecution would come to you, so much illness and weakness and infirmity would be coming your way. If you would have known that by serving God, you would not only have the rose, but also the thorns. Would you have really converted and served God? People in Scripture did. That's why the Bible says we go from faith to faith and glory to glory. God gives you enough to believe him. And along the path, he multiplies the grace so that you continue to believe him. Yes, he wants your faith to grow stronger and more vibrant. Scripture says fight the good fight of faith. What's the good fight? Everybody says it's the fight that you, you win, but you, you can win the fight and it still not be a good fight if you fought it like a girl. Oh, Let's supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say, okay, yes. You know, if, you, if you're a guy in, in school when I was little, when I was in high school, the, the one thing you weren't supposed to do is close your eyes and do that in, in a fight. You weren't supposed to do that. If you did that, wow, even if you won, they said you lost. So a good fight isn't always just the one you win, but I will say a good fight is the one that you win according to God's rules. So you can't play basketball according to soccer rules. And you can't play soccer according to rugby rules. So we have to understand that the fight that we are involved with is already one that Jesus conquered 2,000 years ago at Calvary. So we fight according to the rule that Calvary is going to be enforced against our adversary. All I have to do is battle here. It's a matter of belief. I'm standing on Calvary. I'm victorious. I'm more than a conqueror because of what he has done. That's the good fight of faith, fight of faith. So Isaiah knew that his people were defiled. Everybody doesn't know that. Even in our own nation, some people think that America is just the best it's ever been in its glorious history. But you would have to be somewhat psychotic to believe that. I mean, this, we've got problems on, on every hand. I wish I had just seven minutes to, to go to the White House and preach to the president and his family. That's all I would need is seven minutes. And, and I could say everything that I wanted to say. I wish I could have an invitation to pray before the legislature up in Lincoln. Or even in D.C., I guarantee after that one prayer, there would be people either standing up, clapping, and saying we love him, or they would be saying, kill him. Kill him. It's, it's all because of the, the difference 
in our conception of what it is to be a man or a woman of God. Isaiah has to walk in the midst of a people who are proud enough to believe that they're okay with God, but they're not humble enough to recognize that they're in the wrong way. We see it on television. We hear it on radio. We see it in our communities. We take the time to speak with people. And you listen to folks and you wonder, how did you ever come up with that? Who preached that to you? Who told you that? But God sends people to declare the word of God. This man was called to prophesy prior to the judgment mentioned in verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 6. And that's usually how it happens. Before judgment comes, it's usually preceded by the compassion of God manifested through some man or woman called to tell people to repent. That's the calling. To call us back to God. To call us back to God. Now there is one outstanding characteristic here that we do need to mention. And that's in verse 3 where the seraphim are crying, holy, holy, holy. over and over again, you hear people say God is love, and he is. And I've told you that Isaiah's ministry was one of compassion. It was the the, the affections, the affections of God manifested through the prophet to let the people know how much God loves them. But make no bones about it, folks. The seraphim aren't around that throne crying out love, love, love. Nor are they crying out faith, faith, faith. They're saying holy, holy, holy. That's, that's a characteristic of God. The, the, the Spirit of God, he, he's called the Holy Spirit. He comes to make us holy. And even though we don't hear a lot of ministry on holiness today, God does call us to live a life that's separate, distinct from this world. Not plugged into the world to such degree that people cannot differentiate between us and somebody who doesn't know God. There should be something in our speech, our character, our dress, the way we act. That makes us different from a world that doesn't care anything about the Lord at all. It's a teaching of holiness. Come out from among them. Be ye separate, saith God. And I will be your father. You will be my children. Holiness unto the Lord is what the priest had as he walked into the presence of the Lord. He had it on his outfit. He bore it all the time when he went to the presence of the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. Your body is a temple of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price, the Scripture says. You have no right to say that this is my life. I'll do what I want. Absolutely not. A holy God purchased you. And he did that in order for you to live a sanctified life close to him. I realize that the word holy, holiness, sanctification, and sanctified are words that a community of people despise today, but I can promise you, if there's something that is important to God, it is that we live close to him. We be a holy people. Isaiah was never the same after this. One vision so changed his life that the man had one prophecy after another, and it seems like through these 66 chapters, there's just no end to God speaking to him. That's a relationship. Some 60 years of ministry, per se, And this man had something to say to the nations of the world, to the people of Israel, and directly to every citizen of Jerusalem and Judah. How important is a man or woman of God? Somebody to talk to you, to deal with your heart, to speak to you about the most important things in life. Every community needs preachers that will preach the truth. 
I've had people tell me over and over again, I mean, because it's hardly a month goes by, I don't get some letter in the mail from somebody listening to that radio program. And the message is always the same. Oh, my word. I haven't heard anybody talk like this in decades. Our churches, our pastors, they won't preach the truth. And even when they do preach the truth, they preach it apologetically, almost like they're ashamed or, or sad that they have to tell us what the Bible actually says. And I'm thinking to myself, no wonder that world thinks it owns the church. It walks right in, steps on the toes of the believers, and the believers, rather than moving their feet out of the way and rebuking the devil, they just stand there and let the world tell them what they are to believe and should not believe, what their Bible actually means. But there'll never be a time that an unbeliever is going to tell me what I'm supposed to believe about my Bible. Elephants will roost in trees before that ever happens. Oh, my. But God is good, folks. Come on, let's stand tonight. Isn't it good to have a pastor that preaches the word? Yeah. Oh, my. Makes life worth living. Makes it exciting to know the Lord, to read the Bible. I can't imagine sitting listening to somebody explain to me why Jesus was not born of a virgin. That Jesus didn't live without sin. That he really didn't die on the cross. That nobody can bear somebody else's judgment. That he wasn't raised from the dead, that the disciples made that up. And then to think, there are masses of people turn around and pay a man to preach lies to him over and over again. They write their check, make sure to take care of pastor. He's teaching us lies, but we got to help him. See? We got to help see. No, no, we, we don't ever want anybody to have to hang their head in shame when they say, Brother Darrell preaches the gospel to us. And we're so happy to have somebody called of God. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, how grateful we are that we are able to gather in a place and to magnify your name. Now, Lord, you know when you look in here, you see people that love you. And God, throughout the week, all of us are going to come in contact with people that some of the others are never going to be able to touch or speak to. But God, I pray in every sphere of life, you would give us an opportunity to speak the truth in love. God, give us wisdom when we declare your mind. That people would know the word of God is inspired, infallible, and errant, that it is the truth, and Lord, it's the foundation on which we stand. And God, I pray Holy Ghost conviction would come upon the people that we talk to. I pray that when we walk into the rooms, people would begin to just fall on their face and cry out because of their sins, Lord, just repenting of their iniquity. And God, let the Spirit of the Lord deal with the hearts of all of the others that we speak to. These things, oh God, we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.